Hey guys, what's up? When this episode, I had a pleasure to talk to Sam Smith. He's a writer, activist, and social critic who has been at the forefront of new ideas and new politics for more than five decades. He covered Washington under nine presidents, edited the Progressive Review for over 50 years, wrote four books, helped start six organizations, including the National Green Party, the D.C. Humanities Council, and D.C. Statehood Party. It was a short interview before we got in too deep I hit the record button so you're gonna catch it in like mid thought I just want to provide some background one thing that he brought up was resurrection city I haven't taken DC history in a long time my memory of resurrection city like just escaped me so I had to look it up along with John Weeble. Son. And I should know that year that I got my AIADC award, Barbara Laurie received that award, uh, the Weebs Award. And let me explain to you briefly about Resurrection City. From May 15th to June 24th, 1968, an encampment of poor people and anti-poverty activists from all over the country occupied and lived on the National Mall, just south of the reflecting pool between Lincoln Memorial and what is now World War II Memorial. The activists were called the Poor People's Campaign and the encampment was known as Resurrection City. That's what it says here in this Wikipedia article. And then some news articles brought it up. It was like the 50 year anniversary a couple of years ago of Resurrection City. There were some conflicting comments I shouldn't say conflicting, but the news article that I was reading came from the Washington, no, the New York Times. There was a little article in New York Times, and I was reading some of the comments. And some of the comments mentioned how I remember that, and it was horrible, it smelled, it was disgusting, I can't believe they allowed this to happen. And then other accounts was, you know, it was it was its own little town. It had a barbershop, it had a town hall. Uh, a mess tent, a daycare, it even had its own zip code. And in the conversation I had with Sam Smith, John Weebleson was the architect of that. I didn't I didn't go down that rabbit hole, but I just thought it was interesting, a little little bit of DC history. And I, I know about the Poor People's Campaign, one of um, MLK's last kind of I, uh, I have a dream thing. Another thing we talked about, or he mentioned, was this campaign slogan, uh, white men's roads through black men's bedrooms or black men's homes. So white men's roads through black men's homes. Another another thing that said I came up across was bedrooms. And I found the poster. I think it's the poster. I'll post it on Instagram, but I won't post it on my, I won't post it on this website. So if you check out my Instagram, you'll see it. So I, I, I thought that was um, an interesting slogan and how it's still relevant to this day. But the interview is short and sweet. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks. For about 25 years, I sublet from John Wiebenson, who was a, do you ever hear that name before? <laughs> John Wiebenson, W-I-E-B-S-O-N. Ian, he was one of the great leaders in, in preservation architecture and 
and he also did the planning for Resurrection City. His son is always is also there. His, his he had a son named John Weebenson who was working in Georgetown. The only person I only architect I know in DC now I think is Kendall Dorman who used to work with John Weebenson. Oh, okay. I'm in Maine now, and I haven't been in Washington for 11 years, so don't ask me to. <laughs> <laughs> How's the weather in Maine? Weather in Maine is we've got two we've got two seasons in Maine. We have winter and road repair. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I brought you on because for the historical context, so you don't have to worry about uh, current oh, yeah. events. Yeah, that's one of the problems with my life these days. I'm getting historical. Ah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so you grew up, born and raised in D.C., right? I lived my first nine years in D.C. And my father was in the New Deal, and he didn't want to sign a restricted covenant. You know about restrictive covenants? Yep. So they built a house in Georgetown on a trash dump. So I was about 10 years old before I realized that all dirt didn't have broken glass and metal in it. (laughs) But then I came back to Washington in 1959, after I graduated from college. Spent a, I spent one summer here working for WWDC in 57. You were a journalist major in college or? No, I was an anthropology major. Oh, okay. And it's one of the things that's affected my journalism in no small way, because I think that journalists tend to follow policy and procedures and institutions, and they don't study culture. And that has an awful impact on our society is the things we do because of who we are. What happened when you came back? Were you looking for anthropology jobs or? No, I had just, I had worked a, um, I had worked a summer job at WWDC News. It was uh, then the top rated radio station in town. And and at the end of the summer, the guy offered me a job when I graduated. So I almost flunked out of college because I didn't <laughs> have to worry about a job. <laughs> What kind of stuff were you covering? Oh, I covered everything from national to local. And we also had, we had Deadline Washington News Service. We served 24 news stations around the country. It was, it was when things were sort of primitive. I mean, there were only about a, I'd say about a dozen of us reporters in town who had battery operated tape recorders. Mm. And so that it gave me a nice advantage. I have a photograph of me with John F. Kennedy announcing his presidency because I was able to take my little battery-operated tape recorder and put it right up to his mouth, you know. You still have those tapes? I don't think I have that one. Now, you see, that was one of the bad things about that time, is that you 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 went over the tapes, you used them over. Uh, oh, man. I, I, I brought you over to talk about urban renewal. Mm-hmm. You were around that time when that was happening. Yeah, I actually, one of the stories I remember covering was uh, in Southwest when urban renewal was well underway. And I was interviewing a lady who owned a house and she was surrounded by 150 acres of of torn buildings. It was amazing. This house was just sitting there in this, what looked like a huge trash dump. And I got interested in it because there were various issues that came up over the years such as the freeways, which were going to um, ruin many parts of the city. I think one thing about the freeway fight that still interests me is that it was started by 
white and black middle-class homeowners, the least likely group of people you expect to start a major. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> during that time. And, and, and the reason was because the road was going to go through their neighborhood. And it certainly did. I mean, it affected, it affected Shaw, but it was also going to affect Georgetown. And uh, I remember going to a uh, protest and there were two speakers. One was a Reginald Booker, a black activist who was very much involved in the anti-freeway fight. And the other was Grosvenor Chapman III, a white architect from Georgetown with pinstripe suit. Mm. And I looked up there and I said, you know, we're going to win this battle. And we did. And uh, as, a, as a child of the 60s, I became very much convinced that you organize by issues, not by identity, because with issues you can create alliances that you wouldn't even expect. The Southwest Project, were you able to talk to any other architects or besides that one resident? What was your take on that? Well, I think it was as well as I can remember, and we're talking quite a few years ago, <laughs> <laughs> as well as I can remember, it was it was pretty appalling, you know, to a young guy right out of college to see something like this happening. And it was, it was based on a, an assumption Although the, you know, the major victims were black, I think that in understanding this sort of thing, it helps to understand that that it was a weak that they that these urban renewal goes after, and so that if you're in a uh, situation where you just don't have much political power, which was very easy in those days in Washington. It was very easy, and of course, we also had Congress. We didn't have home rule then. Mm -hmm. and uh, we still don't have the sort of power that other communities have, and, and we paid a big price for it. One of the things that, that I think turned it around was the preservation movement, and that was started in places like Georgetown, also on Capitol Hill, and while it today it seems sort of stuffy, in those days it was basically saving homes. Mm. <laughs> um, and when I think about urban planning, and if you were going to ask me, what's the best urban plan that you've seen? I'd say probably Capitol Hill, which was urban planned in the 19th century and early 20th century, because that's where I lived for many years. And it consisted in no small part of two and three story row houses with basement apartments so that you had a variety of people living in the same block just for economic reasons. And you were also very close. My office for a long time was right next to a carryout and one block away from the local cleaners. But there were also a lot of houses there. And I, I, I dug up something I'd written about the last block I lived in on Capitol Hill. And I pointed out that there was a dry cleaners two blocks away. And within four blocks, there were two convenience stores, a good used bookstore, a superb pharmacy, and a, and a, um, a eating spot. And on our block, we had living there a woman, former astronaut, two cab drivers, a carpenter, a physician, a born-again Baptist preacher, a former de dean of UDC law school, and a physicist. Mm. 
and that's the sort of thing that you find in that sort of in that sort of neighborhood. You think you find that now? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know why, because uh, I don't know what the rents are. And of course, the houses are a lot more expensive. I, I, I was just thinking that I bought my office building on 8th Street Northeast, 8th and Mass Northeast in 1960-something for $7,000, $17,000. Wow. And one of the great metaphors of my time in Washington was that because we lived, we lived about four and a half blocks away from the H Street riot, so we were very much involved in that. And on Obama's inauguration day, I happened to be in Washington, and I was, I was over by my old office, and there standing on the corner was a National uh, Guardsman with, with a rifle in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other, and I looked at him, and I said, why does this guy look so familiar? And then I realized I'd seen exactly the same thing after the riots. Oh, wow. So how's that for a metaphor of change? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned earlier about the freeway, and I know that there's a bypass. I don't know if you're familiar where I grew up. It was like New York Avenue and North Capitol Street. Yeah, that was going to be a mess. Um, what do you remember about that? And why do you call, what, what, what made it messy? Well, if you look for a poster, uh, maybe I can find it, called White Men's Roads Through Black Men's Homes, which was one of the posters that were used in the anti-freeway battle. You can see exactly where those freeways were going, and also a lot of what buildings were going to be taken. Mm. I don't know what happened in your neighborhood. Tell me what happened in your neighborhood. Well, I was reading, and I, I've been meaning to pull this up. Currently, there, it's an underpass. You have New York Avenue that go to Baltimore, uh, BW Parkway, and mm -hmm. then the street goes under New York Avenue and this bypass right. that goes under. So there was protests about that. Right around that area, there was like sit-ins in the middle of the street and people tented out and they finally scratched that but I don't know if they turned it into a bypass instead of a full freeway or what, but that's what I'm remembering that I read somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was an awful lot that was planned and there was an awful lot that happened. For example, Chinatown was twice hit by urban renewal. And I would say that the, the people fighting it were quite an interesting group of people. Julius Hobson was one of the people who fought the freeways very effectively. But there were also people like Sammy Abbott, who was a white artist, a graphic artist, and he's the guy who did the White Men's Roads for Black Men's Homes poster. Mm. And it made me, it taught me, you know, they were very early on, if you want to produce change, you got to come up with the right graphics. It was quite effective. And then, Shortly afterwards, it was really some of the same people who started the D.C. statehood movement. So it wasn't like it was just people interested in, in freeways. It was producing all sorts of change. Do you think architecture is political? Well, I don't know that it's political so much as it is what I would say is sort of self-important. In other words, 
if you were, like I mentioned, Chinatown was, for example, was twice done over because it was weak. And the people who were kicked out of Southwest included a lot of blacks, but also included a lot of whites and, and something like 800 small businesses. And if you look at motivations, I don't think it's political so much as it is powerful. You know, it's just a matter of, I know better than you what this place should look like. And people, ordinary people end up paying a price for that sort of thing. You mentioned in the beginning that you knew a couple of architects. Do they reflect what you just mentioned? They've mentioned both sides. I would say that the, the one architect who was on the right side most of the time was a guy named John Wiebenson, who I actually off, rented office space from. And he was the guy who, who came up with the design for Resurrection City, for example. And he, he also saved the old post office building. And I, he, he died when he was 70. And I, I feel like he was a very lucky man not to know what happened to the old post office building. <laughs> now that Trump became <laughs> the Trump Towers yeah. Hotel. Uh, but he was a, he was an exception. But he was a very he was a very important voice, and I think that it's really important when you're trying to produce change is that you not only have the people who are have sort of a moral interest or a personal interest in it, but also people who have some expertise. And that's why I was very pleased to see that you're doing this podcast because it really helps to have someone who who knows something about what's going on in that profession. Thank you. I came across this quote from G.K. Chesterton, quoted by Richard Sennett. And he talked about the huge modern heresy of, quote, altering the human soul to fit its conditions instead of altering human conditions to fit the human soul. And I think that if you were to come up with a way in which architecture has to be reformed, Architects should probably take anthropology courses and learn about the cultures they're, they're actually going to be changing because it's, it's pretty presumptuous to build a building because you're defining that neighborhood, that, that, that block. And so that if you do it without a sense of what's really going on there, it can, you, it's not that you're doing something that is mean or, or evil. It's just that you're not being sensitive. Have you come across any ugly buildings in D.C.? Well, I, I oh, or how would you define ugly? Like, what's what's your? And that's well, not the same. I would say that the DC, which I left eleven years ago, is a remarkable city in terms of its uh, architecture. Because it's it has human proportions in many many places, and if you think about, say, Dupont Circle, where my office was. Mm-hmm. That was a wonderful neighborhood. I mean, you felt good going to work there. And I would, you know, there were, there were, it had the right feeling. I mean, if you're working in a place like that, one of the first things you know is where are you going to have lunch? And uh, there were several places that were great to have lunch there. Where do you get supplies? That sort of thing. And, um, I think Washington has a lot going for it in terms of the building that took place, I would say, before the mid-50s. And that if that can be uh, emulated, 
we'll be better off. And 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 after while I was there, Capitol Hill was one of the most dense neighborhoods in the city. So that even though it was designed back in the 19th century, it still had a quite a capacity. Yeah, small sidewalks, small streets. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Versus the only the- thing it didn't have was the staples. <laughs> What are you going to build now? What am I going to build now? Yeah. Oh, I'm still trying to find my culture. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh once I get that, then I'll start. How was DC media back then? Was it cutthroat? You didn't like the, um, the Washington Post or the Washington Times, but there were several alternative papers, including my own that were, that it was, I remember one time a mailman coming to me and wanting me to file a complaint about some story that was in a, in a, another alternative newspaper. And I said, no way, <laughs> you know, get out of here. What was the danger? Well, the danger was that the, at the, this is the sixties. So the, the police were very much on your case, you know, and the, one of the funny things I look back on is that um, I'd spent a lot of summers in Maine, and my parents had a phone, a hand-cranked phone that had five neighbors on it. And you didn't know whether you, when you picked up the phone, whether there was going to be somebody else on it. So the phone never seemed to me to be a private instrument. <laughs> I just assumed I wouldn't know if someone was tapping it. Mm-hmm. But it was a different time in that respect. I think that there was a and I would say right now, one of my on larger issues that one of the things that concerns me is the lack of a counterculture by the young. There's a lot of protests, but there isn't a sense of an alternative in the way that there was in the 60s. And I think that's important. Agreed. This has been right. great. We got some bad stuff to watch in an hour. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Stay, stay in touch. <laughs> I will. Oh, hey, the, you're. Thanks a lot. Uh, Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating the show, and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week but it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I wanna keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.